pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive them that trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. We want to continue our study in this present time. And as we learn how to live in this present time, one of the things that we must address and we must begin to get a grip on, wrap our head around, is the idea of handing off our faith, not, not giving our faith away, not losing it, but we're talking about spiritual legacy. We don't talk much uh, as Christians, and it's, it's, I don't think it's because of evil, I think it's just we don't think that way very often. Usually we have to get uh, ourselves facing terminal illness or, uh, or begin to get so old that our mind just shifts toward heaven. You, you realize that you've got more on the other side than you've got on this side. You, you begin to think like a lady told me one time that she said, Pastor, I'm getting so old. She said, I just, I want to go to heaven. I'm getting so old. I'm afraid my friends that went before are going to think I didn't make it, you know, and um, we just generally don't think, we just generally don't think in terms of the next life, except in the broad sense. But specifically, we don't think in terms of handing off to our children, to our grandchildren. And as I said, the application is so broad because not everyone has children, not everyone has grandchildren. But whether it's in terms of business or whatever, an estate, a ministry, um, a, a, a physical family. We are charged to live our lives so that we leave an inheritance to those who come after us. The Bible says that the godly man leaves an inheritance for his children and his grandchildren. And we usually think in terms of money, when, and I certainly think that that's a reflection of the blessing of the Lord if you can leave something for your children or your grandchildren. But it's more than that. There's something that we have the privilege of living out so that when we are gone, that's how they remember us. I remember a great uh, prayer warrior, uh, Helen, is it you and Justin, do you remember the, the book, little booklet? Helen, Helen Ewan, she, she only lived to be in her early 20s, but she had such an anointing of prayer on her life. It was phenomenal. Uh, I mean, literally, she, she would walk into a room and she would spark intercession just by walking into the room. And she wasn't a particularly outwardly gifted person. She had just committed herself to prayer. One of the stories I love about Helen is that years after she was gone, years after she was gone, there was a picture of her on a fireplace mantle. And um, the people that had the picture there uh, had a connection in their parents and grandparents going back to her. She had been dead for decades. But her picture, the only picture I know of that exists of her, was on that mantle. And they said that 
almost every time they entertained guests, they would have just a normal evening until they would retire into that room to enjoy the fire. And every, every time, almost without exception, the guests who had no idea who she was would feel such a strong compunction to pray and to intercede. And sometimes they would walk into the room and just begin to weep and cry as their heart would pour out for the lost or for the needy or for the hurting. And they, nobody understood it. And with time, they began to piece together. The anointing of her life was intercession. And the legacy she left behind was so great that a picture of her on a mantle would stir the hearts of people that came into that room for generations afterwards. We have a legacy that we can pass on. And loved ones, we need to understand that there comes a time to hand off the legacy. Now, again, this I told the first service is probably the most difficult <coughs> message I preach. Not, not to preach, it's not difficult to preach, but as I said, the application is so broad. Someone over here may make an application that is totally unrelated to someone over here that may make an application. Somebody over here, it may be about a, an estate, while someone over here, it may be an, about an anointing on your children or your grandchildren or your great-grandchildren. Um, I need you to just think differently today that the application may be broad and may mean totally different to one person than another. But the principle is that we need to live our life and live our lives in such a way that we gladly hand off our legacy to those who come behind us. It may be a family, maybe a church, maybe a business. Um, back in the day when I had more hair and less belly, I was in high school and ran the 440 relay. Now, it's a little different now. They, they do it by meters, but back then it was just called the 440 relay. And it was the team was made up of four people. The first runner would begin holding a baton. And the runner would go and the, the second runner, as he saw his teammate approaching, would begin to run. And the goal was that in that few yards of space that they had, when the runner entered that box, when the runner entered that space, it was up to the next person to, to understand the rhythm and the pace and the speed. And that second runner had to get up to speed. And the first runner had to, to keep his rhythm. And it was so important because before they got out of that box, that, that second runner had to put their hand behind them. And the first runner had to transfer the baton. They, he couldn't run and stop and say, here, go. It was, it was, you got a person that's not moving, you got a person that's coming, and they've got to pick up each other's signals, and before they reach this point, they have to hand off the baton. If you don't hand off the baton in, the, in that box, you're disqualified. If you drop the baton, you're going to lose the race. And this is what our coach said. He said the entire race is won or lost at the point of transfer. He said the only thing that matters... I mean, we knew this, but he said, the only thing that matters is getting this baton to the end of the race. No one person can do it. It doesn't matter how fast you run. It, well, it matters, but he said, it, it's not a matter of how fast you run 
or how pretty you look or how many girls think you're handsome. He said, you can, you can run phenomenally well, but if you don't transfer, we lose. He said, it's not about you. It's about getting this stick from here to the finish line. And I thought, boy, that's, that says a lot. No wonder Paul said, I have finished my race. I've run a, my race. He understood, and Paul understood it so well, it's a matter not only of doing the Christian stuff, it's a matter of being part of a team and passing it on. In fact, Christians are not anywhere near maturity until they understand how to receive from the past and how to hand it off to the future. We have too many people with egos as big as Alaska that think everything lives and dies with them. Their ministry lives and dies with them. But loved ones, the more mature you get in Christ, the more you realize you ain't nothing except a delivery boy or a delivery girl. What matters is that the baton gets passed to the next runner. And I think God in these days is calling the church to begin to understand afresh and anew that our goal, okay, we've lived the life. We've run our leg of the race. Or at least we're coming up on it. You may, be, you may be years away from, quote, finishing your race. Um, this, is not a, this is a message for everybody that's about to die. That's not what this is. I'm saying you don't wait till it's time to die to decide I'm going to pass it on. You lay your life out and you run a race because it's important for you to get from here to here. But it's just as important in a 440 relay for you to realize I've got to get... I've got, to, I've got to be intentional. I've got to be deliberate. That person has one time to look back at me and see my pace, see where I am, and then I have to be so consistent that they adopt my pace. They have to have such confidence that they stop looking at me. They start running, and all they do is put their hand back, and it's my job to be sure that it gets put in that hand. And I tell you what, Coach had us, he, he, we, he would do a lot of conditioning, but basically he'd have us run these 50, 60 yard drills where we would just have to pass it off because that's where the race is won or lost. And that doesn't mean that the person who's handing off is less. Um, the Bible says in Proverbs 16, 31, that gray hair is the crown of glory. I mean, we, we go to great lengths to, uh, to, to, to not show gray hair. We go to great lengths to say, oh, that makes me look old. No, it's your crown of glory. It's the gray hair of experience, Proverbs 16, 31. Uh, Proverbs 29, believe it or not, it says that a head full of gray hair is uh, a sign of beauty in the eyes of the Lord, the gray hair of experience. It's not a lessening. It's saying that theoretically you have lived your life in such a way that you've got something to say. And you've got something to deliver. Paul spoke about church leadership. He said it shouldn't be a, a novice. And, and that's not about necessarily age. That's about experience. But he was saying that you don't want somebody that's too inexperienced in the things of the Lord to not understand the value of the baton. Because they can be caught up 
in pride and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Um, in the book of, uh, oh, I forget which book, but it's in the law of Moses. Whenever an elderly person entered the room, I mean, this was, this was their culture. They did this. At, I mean, it sounds like a lot of work, but whenever an elderly person entered the room, the younger men and women would stand. You say, what, what for, for the king? For, for a judge? For, no, someone in your family with gray hair or someone in the community with gray hair enters the room, you stand up because you are at a place of honor. But loved ones, God takes this so seriously that we need to understand you are at a place of honor because you're holding something that the next runner has to have. You've held it, you've had your time, but now it's time to give it to someone else. And then there's that beautiful time where you're both running in the same lane, you're running together. And there comes a moment that's absolutely exquisite. Forgive me, it's just I'm an old 440-er. It's, it's, it's beautiful. It's an emotional high when you're both holding the baton at the same time. And for that second or two, you realize we are connected. What I've done and what he's going to do. He's a part of what I've done. I am a part of what he's going to do. And it's euphoria. And that's the way I think we need to view Christianity. I, I caution newlyweds to spend as much time in planning their marriage as they plan their wedding. We, we have people that spend a fortune planning a wedding and spend a fortune in, in, in planning the wedding, but they don't put any time to speak of in planning a marriage. And that wedding's going to be over in just a few minutes. Uh, even if you include the reception, we're talking about a few hours, but then you've got something ahead of you. It's going to last 40, 50, 60, maybe, maybe longer years. I know when my dad died, my mom, obviously, obviously justifiably just was just crying and just weeping. And I, I couldn't console her. She was battling Alzheimer's and it, it, she'd ask where daddy was. And then she'd ride I'd say, Mom, Daddy's, Daddy's dead. We're going to his funeral. And then she would relive it all. And I, I just, I didn't know how to handle it. And it, it took me a while to figure out how to approach that. But she said, I haven't been with him that long. And I said, Mom, you and Daddy have been married for 65 years. She said, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Only 65 years. They understood the difference between a wedding, and a marriage. The Christian life is the same stripe. It's the same thing. We need to learn to put as much into what we're going to pass on as what we live. That's why Paul said, I have finished the course. I've run the race. I've fought a good fight. That's why Jesus, when he was on the cross, the pinnacle of what Jesus did on the cross, the pinnacle, the high point of him being on the cross and, and, and it's all phenomenal. It's all supernaturally beautiful. It, it, it's all to be worshipped. But it's when Jesus said, it is finished. Jesus said, everything's right because it is finished. I've completed what Father sent me to do. And it wasn't just on the cross. That's how the whole thing ends. When you go to the book of Revelation... 
uh, chapter 21, when, and, and that day is ahead, but when everything comes to an end, John said, and I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is now with men and he shall dwell with them and they shall be his people. And on that day, God himself shall be with them. And he who sat upon the throne said, behold, look, John, I make all things new. Understand that these words that I speak are faithful and true. And then after he says all of this amazing thing, he says to John, and by way of a shout, it is done. The day is coming when Jesus, we say, oh, he's going to wipe away all tears. That's going to be beautiful. I'm going to be reunited with my loved ones. That is fantastic. All that heaven is, is going to be more than we can understand. The Bible says, eye has not seen, ear has not heard, neither has it entered into the heart of man, the things that God has prepared for those that love him. But God reveals them to us by his spirit. We get a little bit at a time, but on that day, we will be like him and we will see everything as it is. All of that is beautiful. But the crowning moment is when he says, it's done. It's done. And loved ones, our lives ought to be lived so that when we pass, we can say it's done. At least our little part. It's done. It's done. It's done. And the problem is, I'm not fussing, we just don't think this. It's, it's not because of sin, I don't think, it's just because we're so conditioned to get through the day. You know, a lot of people said life wouldn't be so bad if it just weren't so daily, you know. <laughs> but we ought to be living, and somebody said this at lunch to me this week, and it blessed my heart, it, it, it sank into my heart. I knew it, I've said it, but it just sank in. They just said, this isn't home. This is not home. We're headed for home, and we ought to be able and ready to, to pass that on. Now, I'm going to use today um, David and Solomon as an example of how to live when you pass, when it's time to pass it on, when it's time to hand off the baton. And again, like I said, this is a message, the application's all over the place. This is not just a message for those that are about to die. This, this is not a message for those that are about to retire. This is not a message for those whose children are about to get married, you know, and move out of the home. This is a principle of getting ready for moments like that. Um, let's read the account in 1 Chronicles 28, verses 9 and 10. Now David assembled at Jerusalem all the leaders of Israel, the officers of the tribes, and captains of the divisions who served the king, the captains over thousands, captains over hundreds, and the stewards over all the substance and possessions of the king and his sons with the officials, the valiant men, the mighty men of valor. King David rose to his feet and said, hear me, my brethren and my people. Now, this is near the end of David's life. He's, he's about 70 years old. Uh, he began to reign when he was 30. He reigned 40 years. So he's about 70 years old, give or take a, a few months. Um, and David rose to his feet and said, Hear me, my brethren and my people. I had it in my heart to build a house of rest for the ark of the covenant of the Lord and for the footstool of our God. 
and had made preparations to build it. But God said to me, you shall not build a house for my name because you have been a man of war and have shed blood. However, the Lord God of Israel chose me above all the house of my father to be king over Israel forever. For he has chosen Judah to be the ruler and of the house of Judah, the house of my father and among the sons of my father, he was pleased to make me king over all Israel. And all of my sons, for the Lord has given me many sons, uh, of all my sons, <coughs> excuse me, he has chosen my son Solomon to sit on the throne of the kingdom of the Lord over Israel. Now he said to me, it is your son Solomon who shall build my house and my courts, for I have chosen him to be my son and I will be his father. Moreover, I will establish his kingdom forever if he is steadfast to observe my commandments and my judgments as it is this day. Now, therefore, in the sight of all Israel, the assembly of the Lord and in the hearing of our God, be careful to seek out all the commandments of the Lord your God that you may possess this good land and leave it as an inheritance for your children after you forever. But as for you, my son Solomon, know the God of your father, serve him with a loyal heart and with a willing mind, for the Lord searches all hearts and understands all the intent of the thoughts. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will cast you off forever. Consider now, for the Lord has chosen you to build a house for the sanctuary. Be strong and do it. Now, this is a very pivotal moment. It was in David's heart, and God said, it's good that it was in your heart. Loved ones, we need to learn that just because God says no to something, it doesn't mean that he's not pleased with what we're asking for. It doesn't mean that you're wrong in asking for it. God has plans that even if he, even if he explained it to us, we wouldn't understand it. We wouldn't understand it. Boy, I just thought I had it, saw an angel flying. It was the camera. I was getting excited there. I thought we're going to go into, we're going to go in a different direction. It's like a t-shirt I saw one time. It says, they say I have OCD, but they just don't understand. Oh, look at chicken, you know, but uh, <clears throat> David had this desire. It was in his heart. It was so powerful. It was so beautiful that he spoke to his prophet who was an advisor. And he said, this is what I want to do. I want to build a house for the Lord. And the prophet said, David, that is wonderful. Any, God's hand is with you. If this is what you want to do, do it because God's hand is on you. You have his favor. And it was just such an obvious thing for David to do. A beautiful closing uh, act for his career. But the Lord spoke to the prophet and said, tell David that though it's good that this was in his heart, he's not the one to build it. He's been a man of war. I, I don't think God was saying people of war can't build things or that people who do battles aren't holy. Uh, those, those wars that David fought were ordained of the Lord. He ordered them to take place. Uh, I can't think of one off the top of my head that wasn't God's counsel and, the, and that God didn't bless. 
And um, God wasn't saying you're not worthy because you've been a man of war. God was saying everybody has a job. Everybody has a responsibility. Everybody has a function. And some will build, some will battle. Both are important. Some will do this, some will do the other. And David, for reasons you might not understand, now I want my building of my house to be marked by peace. He said, I never asked for this. I never told you that I was going to pout until you built a house for me. This was in your heart and I am honoring you. It's a good thing the way you want to honor me, but it's important that the building of the house be surrounded by peace and not by war. There's a time for battle. There's a time for building and your time was battle. It'll be Solomon's time to build. And David understood that. And, um, you know, David could have responded like us sometimes, or like me at least. He could have said, Lord, I have always tried to put you first. I tried to bring the ark to Jerusalem, and I didn't, I didn't argue with you when you killed Uzzah for touching the ark the wrong way. He said, I just shut everything down and said, we got to get a better grip on how God moves. And I have tried and you have shut me down. I've tried and you did this. I said, Lord, Lord I, I am just, I'm frustrated. And now I have this wonderful plan and you say no. David didn't do that. He responded beautifully. And in the little bit of time that we've got left, I want to talk about David's ability to hand off the baton. I tell you what, I know I, I ran the second leg on that race and you, you hold that baton tight because if you drop it, it's over. It's over. You drop that like it's a letter from a, from a loved one. You are not going to let go of that. I, I remember looking at my hands, my knuckle being white, just holding on to that thing because it's given to me. It's my job. I've received it and I've got to hand it off. And I cherish the baton was the attitude in my mind. And David cherished this thing that was in his heart. And now God is saying, hand it off to someone else. Hand it off to your son. And boy, what an honor it was to hand it off to his son. And he was, he was going to handle it beautifully, but Solomon, we want to look at him, has got to receive it graciously. And I want to talk about both of those men very quickly. I want to talk about a couple of points we've got to beware of if we're going to run this race, and then we'll wrap it up. Um, David, here, here are three things that I want you to see about David. Instead of feeling resentful, David set Solomon up for success. The second thing we want to see is that David allowed God to redeem even the poor choices of his life. And the third thing is that David remained humble and focused on the Lord's glory. When you get your dreams and plans interrupted, if you can do those three things, you are set to pass the baton and you are a um, vitally important part of the team. What do we mean when we said instead of feeling resentful, David set Solomon up for success? I don't know if we realize it because we don't understand shekels and all of this stuff. Um, but David contributed a massive fortune for the project. Uh, David would have been one of the top three richest men in America if he lived today, by the time you transfer those ounces and shekels and pounds and all of that, David was, was staggeringly rich. 
staggeringly rich. And he became rich from the spoils of war. He would go into battle and he not only conquered a nation, but he got the riches of that nation. And David was stinking rich. I mean, uh, unbelievably rich. He probably blew his nose on $500 bills, you know, if he had lived in our culture. Um, and David used the, a vast uh, amount. We don't even know if it was a majority of what he had, but David contributed a massive fortune for the project, knowing that he wasn't going to get credit for it. In, in the minds of an outward observer. He made key connections with gifted artisans and service providers. He not only gave the money, but he said, Solomon, I have arranged for the greatest wood craftsman in the world to make, it's going to be, and the stone is going to be the best stone in the world. And it's going to be done so well that there won't be a sound of a hammer or chisel or, or grinding heard at the work site. It will be done by expert artisans at the source of the supply. And when it's brought in, it will just fit together. Not a sound of a hammer will be heard. Uh, he allowed his son to receive the credit. Nobody talks about David's temple. It's Solomon's temple. David did the plans. David provided the resources. David put the workers together. But he was fine for it to be called Solomon's temple. <clears throat> then he did two more things. I think there's only one on your outline because I, I didn't want to be held responsible for the last one. Um, the number four is he poured practical wisdom into the life of Solomon. In 1 Kings 2, uh, verses 1 through 4, David just poured everyday wisdom into the life of his son. The book of Proverbs is a result of David pouring wisdom into the life of his son. But he not only poured practical wisdom into the life of the son. Uh, number five, again, I, I, this isn't on your notes. I did put it in later, not not for the reason I said. Um, he even said some very hard things to Solomon about enemies and unresolved problems. Uh, basically, boy, it's a different culture in a different time. But, you know, I preached a message about how beautiful David uh, first time I preached through the life of David, how beautiful he was to forgive Shimei for, you know, Shimei was the one when David was fleeing from Absalom, that he threw rocks and dirt and sticks and stones at David, told him he was just getting what he deserved. David's men wanted to kill Shimei, just wanted to wipe him off the face of the earth. And David said, no, maybe God is speaking something to him. I'm too hard-hearted to see right now. And when he came back into town, uh, Shemai came to him like a puppy with its tail between his legs. I am sorry. I shouldn't have said those things. I know you're back in power now. And, he, and David showed incredible mercy and forgave him. And then when you come to David's life, I, I, I condemned him. Boy, I said, that, that wasn't real forgiveness. He, he said, this man needs to die. And the, the exact wording was, uh, don't let his gray head go to the, gray, uh, go to the grave in peace. I mean, it sounds like he's setting up a hit on, on Shimei. And it wasn't just Shimei, it was Joab. Joab, the commander of his army. You read the life of Joab, and Joab, in my opinion, uh, was a snake in the grass. He was always trying to be the power behind the throne. He, he, it looked like on a couple occasions he was going to try to seize power from David. 
And I, I don't like Joab. And Joab was a deceitful man. He was a murderous man. And David said to Solomon, Joab needs to die too. Now what he said in English translation was, in your wisdom, you'll know what needs to be done. And I'm not trying to make an excuse for David. I mean, the kings did that in those days. But David was saying, listen to me, Solomon. I was in a position of power. I was able to forgive Shemai his gross uh, treason. I was in a position of power, and I was probably the only man in the kingdom that could control Joab. Joab was treacherous. Joab was unpredictable. But in your wisdom, you're going to know what to do because I'll tell you what's true about both of these men. Both of these men will present themselves with their true colors, and both of these men will pull you down at the first opportunity. And that's exactly what happened. Joab acted inappropriately, and Shimei violated clear instruction. Solomon said, don't do this, don't do this, and don't do this. And Shimei did it anyway. Both of them did exactly what they were told not to do. And Solomon said, my dad was right. These men need to be removed from the kingdom. Now, don't go home and plan anything. <laughs> don't, I, that's not what I'm saying. It was a different time. It was a different circumstance. And you're not the king. But he even said, listen, I was able to grant some leniency that you're not going to be able to grant. You're going to have to understand if you're going to secure the kingdom, these men have to go. They have to go. And that's a hard thing sometimes for, for us to pass on because we want everything to be merciful. We want everything to be grace-filled. We want everything to be just splendid and, and rosy-cheeked and honeydew melon. That's what we want. But Jesus was full of grace and truth. You know, Jesus was able to say, where are your accusers, woman? And she said, there's no man, Lord. He said, then I don't accuse you either. But go your way and stop this. Stop living like this. Uh, go your way and don't sin anymore. So instead of feeling resentful, David set Solomon up for success, even telling him the unpleasant things that he would have to face and how he would have to deal with it. You're already squelched now, so let me go and see if I can revive you. Uh, the second thing David did is David allowed God to redeem even the poor choices of his life. I, I, I am sensitive. I'm just revealing a flaw, and I've got plenty of flaws and uh, plenty of weaknesses, but I've always had to fight the idea of shame now, I've always been a good church kid. I was raised in church. I gave my life to the Lord when I was a little boy. But I've said things I wish I hadn't said. I've done things I wish I hadn't done. I'm not talking about felonies or that kind of thing. But I've done things that I'm ashamed of. And I know that I'm forgiven for saying what I said in a moment of discouragement. Or I know that I'm forgiven for lying when, because it was easier to lie than tell the truth about a certain situation. I, 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 know, I know that I'm forgiven, but I also find those things coming up in my mind every time I feel like God wants to do something or bless me. I, I just feel this fight with shame. And that's the work of the enemy. There's no condemnation 
to those who were in Christ Jesus, who live not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. But, but sometimes I think we need some shame in our lives, but we need to be able to know how to handle shame. When I say we need it, we need to be ashamed of some things. But we need to know how to handle shame. And that's always been a struggle for me. I always feel not worthy. Every time, uh, you know, in the month when I'm reading through Psalms, when I get to Psalm 7, I, I get in a funk over Psalm 7. Because David says, if I am guilty of any of this, strike me down. Well, I'm guilty. I did this. I said that. Yeah, you say, but it's forgiven. I know. But the enemy wants to flood us with shame. He wants to flood us with shame. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but Solomon and Bathsheba were both in David's life as a result of David's sin. I mean, now I, I, don't, mean, I don't mean Solomon was evil or, or that Bathsheba even was, was evil. Um, when the king summons you, it's, it's, it's hard to say no to something in that culture in those days. I, I don't know if it was in her heart or not, but all I know is she became his wife because of David's sin. She became his wife because David had her husband murdered for all intents and purposes. Solomon was the product of their sexual union, even though they were husband and wife. I, I mean, that... But it would never have happened if David hadn't sinned. Now, you look at that and you say, when, when, the, when Solomon was, was named, David and Bathsheba named him Solomon, but the Lord said, I'm going to call him Jedidiah, which means loved of the Lord. It was God saying, he, he is so precious to me. He's so special to me. Like, I don't, I don't want to embarrass Corey, but... You know, Oliver James, that's a beautiful, beautiful name. But you know Corey's going to call him little Corey. I mean, you know that. It's, it's going to be the equivalent of Jedediah, you know. Loved of the Lord. But David somehow had the ability. I think the secret's found in Psalm 51, which we talked about before. But David had the ability to let God redeem his shame. And loved ones, we need to let God redeem our shame. And we need to teach our children uh, to understand there's no such thing as an illegitimate child. We, we need to teach our children that no matter what the circumstances around their birth or their upbringing were, they are precious in the sight of God. They are precious in the plan of God. Their destiny is just as valid as anyone else's destiny. We need to help people understand that no matter if the world looks down on you, God can lift you up. Like the old song said, when others see a shepherd boy, God may see a king. There was a preacher that I heard years ago, and um, he talked about when he was growing up, um, he uh, he had been raised in, in uh, uh, a home, a single parent home, which was almost unheard of back in those days. And he didn't know who his daddy was. His mama 
didn't even know who his daddy was. They lived in poverty, and he ended up going to a Baptist church. This was back in the 30s, I think. And uh, uh, all of his life, he had been called a bastard. He, all of his life, kids made fun of him, saying, you don't even know who your daddy is. And boy, that touches the heart of Jesus, because that's what the Pharisees said to Jesus. They said, we know who our father is. You know, as if to say, you don't know who your father is. Probably some Roman soldier stationed at Nazareth and your mother was just a, a slut about town. You don't even know who your father is. That touches the heart of Jesus. He has a special heart for, as the video said today, for orphans and widows. If you want to get in trouble, mess with orphans and widows. God has a special place for them. And this boy grew up being called a bad, the, his, his mother's family rejected him. And he's, there he is a junior high boy, uh, that's finally thinks he's found some significance in church. And the pastor walks up to him, I believe led by the Holy spirit. And the pastor got down and looked at, or knelt down and looked at him and said, whose boy are you? And he thought, Oh no. Oh no, you know, it's, it's even going to happen here in church. And the pastor looked, took his face in his hands. He said, look at me. Oh, I know whose boy you are. And he, his, he said his heart just sank. It just sank. He said, I would recognize that face anywhere. He said, you are a child of God. And he said, and the, the pastor just felt of the Lord that there was an issue going on. He knew the story, but he felt like this was a critical time. And he said, you look just like your daddy. You are a child of God. You always know who your daddy is. And that pastor said, that changed my life. He said, the taunting kept on, the ridicule kept on. But for the rest of my life till this day as an old man, I know who my daddy is. And we need to understand that when we repent of our sins, it's okay to be ashamed of your sins, but don't let shame be your life ID. Don't let that be the dominant. Don't let that be the dominant emotion of your life because God, the psalmist said, Lord, don't let me be put to shame. Lord, don't let me be put to shame. Every time I read Psalm 7, I look up those shame verses and I read it. Don't let me be put to shame. Um, but God is able to redeem even the poor choices of life. Okay, now number one, instead of feeling resentment, he set Solomon up for success he allowed God to redeem the poor choices of his life. And David remained humble and focused on the Lord's glory. You got to understand, this is what David said. Lord, I just want to build you a house. And the Lord said, okay, Solomon will do it. You can help, but Solomon will do it. And the Lord said, this is what I'm going to do for you. You want to build me a house? David, I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to establish the house of David and there will always be a descendant of David on the throne of Israel. Now you say, oh, that ended with Zedekiah back in, in 586 BC. That's, that's been gone a long time. But the lion of the tribe of Judah, he has prevailed. I know sometimes we feel overwhelmed. I think of the book of Revelation again, where John said there was a, a book sealed with scrolls, seven scrolls inside and outside. Nobody could open it. Nobody was found worthy. No angel was worthy. Nobody was found worthy. And John said, I knew what that meant. 
the purposes of God were lost. Nobody is able to open the book. And he said, I began to weep because I realized we were a lost cause. And one of the angels said, no, John, don't weep. For behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, he has prevailed and he is able to open the book. Oh, and he said, who am I that you should build a house for me? Whatever we build for you can never possibly contain your glory and the honor of your name. And, and uh, he never got over, you know, the why me, why me? A humble man or woman never gets past why me, why me? Uh, arrogant people, they say, well, why not me? Why not me? But humble people say, why me? David said, I'm going to set Solomon up for success. David said, I see God taking the darkest, most shameful moment of my life and turning it into something beautiful. And I see God, uh, or I see that the primary thing here is for him to receive glory and honor. Now, let's, let's, that's, a, that's a pretty good pass of the baton. Now, let's talk about the man who had to receive the baton. Oh, we got to hurry. Famous last words. Let's talk about Solomon for just a minute. Solomon, three things about Solomon. Solomon showed loyalty and respect for David and his generation. Loved ones, if you are a teenager, if you're in your 20s or 30s, if you, maybe even if you're in your 40s, I want you to know you're in this beautiful sanctuary today with air conditioning that works. You, you are in a, a beautiful place worshiping God because of a generation that went before you and made this building possible. Some of you are here today, you're saying, oh, I wish the church would do this, we ought to do that, we ought to do it that way. And you've never contributed a dime to the upkeep of the church or the ministry of the church. You are absolutely clueless to the idea that there are people that you call outdated and old-fashioned that paid for this thing. But Solomon, oh, maybe that's another service. I'm thinking of another church. Never mind. Never mind. Solomon showed loyalty and respect for David and his generation. There's nothing wrong with the generation, as I said, changing the frame. You know, you've got a masterpiece. We've talked about this before. If you have a masterpiece, you know, if, if, you, if you want a starry, starry night by Van Gogh and you want it in your house, you might have frame A if it's in the family room. You might have frame B if it's in the bathroom. You might have frame C if it's in the kitchen or frame D if it's in the hallway. You might have a fifth frame if it's in the playroom or recreation room. But I want to tell you something. You may change the frame all you want, but you don't ever add a star to the painting. You don't ever change the painting. It's a masterpiece. And that's the way we've got to be with the gospel. Times and seasons may mean that we have to change the frame of something. I still think in terms of we ought to get eight tracks for everybody. I mean, I, I really do. I'll suggest things. And, and God bless Vonna, Corey. God, they're so kind to me. I'll say, let's do this. And, and the other day, I think it was Vonna that said, Pastor, that technology doesn't exist anymore. We don't, we don't do that anymore. And I said, I've got a house full of them. It doesn't exist anymore. We need to do it this way. I don't know. 
I don't know. World's changing. I don't know if it's for the better. But what I'm reminded of all the time is frames are constantly changing depending on the context. But you don't mess with the message. You don't mess with the gospel. From his shepherd father, Solomon learned that a shepherd cares for a sheep. And David was always concerned about the people. Even when God was judging David for the sin of numbering his army when he wasn't supposed to do that, David said, Father, this is my fault. Don't punish these innocent people. This is my doing. And Solomon, when he was given the opportunity, asked for whatever you want. I've thought, what would I do if God asked me for whatever I want? I, I, I've, I've had some very noble answers. And then I've said, I, I wish for 10 more wishes, you know. But Solomon, all he could have asked for, he said, give me wisdom to be a good shepherd. Give me wisdom to be a good shepherd. Um, now, there are some dangerous intersections that we have to be careful of. Solomon encountered the Lord, but God blessed him with such blessing that he ended up following business instead of following spirituality. I, I just want to say this. I wish I had more time, but I, it, this is my fault. I, I didn't time myself well today. But the most dangerous place to be when you're trying to pass on a legacy, the most dangerous place to be in your walk with the Lord is the path of maturity and blessing and prosperity because sooner or later you're tempted to think, I have done this. I have achieved this. And that's what, that's what God said through Moses back in the Pentateuch. He said, the day will come when you'll say, I have done this. I have earned this. I have won these battles. And he said, that's when God sends judgment to remind us who we are and who we're not. You know, we, there's a lot of teaching in churches about we need to know who we are in Christ. Loved ones, I agree, but you need to know who you're not in Christ as well. And it's a difficult thing. Solomon, uh, it takes a steady hand to hold a full cup, as we have said. And if you're, if you're living for a legacy, you want to be sure that you live in humility and that you dance with the one who brung you. Uh, you, you didn't get to where you are by your intellect or your talent. You got to where you are by the blessing of the Lord and dance with the one who brung you. Uh, you don't change partners be, when somebody has gone to the trouble and expense of getting you to the dance. Dance with the one who brought you. You need to go back to your roots. Our children need to go back to roots. Change the frame all you want, but don't betray your roots. Um, let me say this. Uh, oh, I'm just trying. It's time. It's not what I'm saying I'm battling with. Let me say this about the generational problems that we have. Um, i tell you what we'll do. Next time Corey preaches, I will ask him to preach only for 15 minutes to, to, to redeem the time here. Um, the problem with generations, you see it in Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, first, second, and third generation. We see this pattern repeated over and over again. It's just human nature. Whenever God does a work, the first generation usually has nothing, and everything they get, they get from God. Everything they get, they get from God. The second generation is just as blessed. They have the same promise, but everything they get, they got by inheritance. And when you inherit something, you don't always appreciate 
what you've inherited. Some people do. And Isaac had to go through a place. The enemy took over his wells that he had dug and that, that Abraham had dug. And, and Isaac was trying to live out an inheritance without contending for his inheritance. And the Bible says that it got to the point where Isaac said, I'm not going to let the enemy take my wells anymore. He, he would move on from one well to another. And, and loved ones, you, you, need to, you need to just watch the culture. When we start bending on one scripture, it's not long before we're bending on another. And pretty soon you don't believe anything. And he said, we're not going to do this. This is the land God promised. He made the promise to my father. He made the promise to me, but I have to do what my father did. He dug wells and he built altars. He dug wells and he built altars. And Isaac had to discover what it's like to build altars. And Isaac, the Bible says, redug the wells that his father had dug. And this is something significant. He called them by the same name his father did. So to our teenagers, to our 20-somethings, to our 30-somethings, I know times change. I know I'm a dinosaur. I know that. But you need to go back to the wells that the earlier generation has dug. You need to call them what they are. And our commission is not to please the world. Our commission is to please the Lord. Okay. The second thing about Solomon is that he had been prepared by David, but Solomon fared, failed to prepare his son Rehoboam. When Rehoboam came to power, if, if Solomon had invested the time in Rehoboam that um, David invested in him, it would have been a different story. But the wives, I mean, you, to, be a, to be a husband in name only, it takes all your time with 700 wives or 300 wives and 700 porcupines. We talked about that the other day. A thousand women that Solomon now puts his identity into them instead of spiritual matters and the things uh, that he had, that had made him strong. So as a result, Rehoboam, when he came to power, followed foolish advice and lost 10 of the 12 tribes lost them. They went and followed Jeroboam. Ronald Reagan once said, America is only one generation away from extinction. And except for God's preserving grace of the remnant, I think the same could be said of Christianity. Loved ones, I know that Christianity is not going to be extinct. God said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. But I, he's talking about the true church, the living church, the obedient church, what we call the remnant church. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will inherit the kingdom. What are the Christian life lessons? Well, let's wrap it up with this. Number one, every generation must face its own battles and its own mission. You know, I've tried to raise my children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. I wasn't a perfect father, but I, but I tried. But you know what I understand? I understand that even though I tried my best, they still have their own battles. They have to fight their battles. That's what God did. He said that Joshua did not run out everything that needed to be run out because each generation has to fight their own battles. But loved ones, even though that's true, we must not leave our battles for our children to fight. 
I know, I know my children are going to have their own battles, but I don't want them to have to deal with an enemy because I didn't deal with an enemy. Number two, after all is said and done, we must commit our children to the Lord's care. After all is said and done, we must commit our children to the Lord's care. He's promised to bless them. He loves our children even more than we do. And your legacy does not succeed or fail by you micromanaging their lives. And, and again, the application is wide. Number three, we all need, I'm going to give you this quickly. We need four people in our life at least, at least. I'm talking about spiritually. And, and I'll repeat this because I don't think this is in your notes. It is? Okay. Well, then I won't repeat it. Except to say you need a Gamaliel to learn from. That means you need a father or mother in the Lord, just like Paul had Gamaliel. And just like Paul had a Silas to stand beside, you need to pray that God will give you an equal. Everybody needs an equal. Everybody needs somebody to look them in the eye and ask the hard questions. And you need that. Um, you need a Gamaliel. You need a Silas. You need a Barnabas that is a mentor or an encourager, somebody that helps you. Loved ones, sometimes you don't need somebody that understands all the minutia of finances, or you don't need somebody that understands everything about uh, Western democracy and the history of the you know, dark ages. Sometimes you just need somebody to put an arm around you and encourage you. And we all need a Timothy. We not only need somebody to ground us, to help us, to walk with us, but we need somebody that we can pour our lives into. Number four, make room for the way you were made. That means understand your basic personality. God made you with the personality you've got. Now that doesn't mean our personality doesn't need refinement. Because some people, uh, the only traits of their personality type are the bad ones. And we need, we need to constantly be in the process of being sanctified, set apart, cleansed. We need to be the best introvert we can be or the best extrovert we can be. We need to be the best we can be. But you need to understand God made you the way you are and your basic personality doesn't change. You need to find out how to be the best whatever you are that you can be. Focus on understanding the love languages. I know that, that that book is not perfect. I know that it has, you know, maybe some, some blind spots. I know that, but I want to tell you the, the concept of the love of the love languages is true. And I encourage you to get that book and understand why you are the way you are, why your wife is the way she is, how, how to speak to your children. You, you really need to make room for the way you were made. And I, I spent so much time, the first 20 years of my ministry, trying to compensate for my weaknesses. Uh, you, you, everybody has strengths and everybody has weaknesses. And I spent 20 years obsessing over how can I beat my weakness? How can I make my weakness better? And you know what I found out? I need to play to my strengths, not my weaknesses. You say, well, what do you do with your weaknesses? Well, I try to, to do what I can for my weaknesses, but they're a weakness. I'm not going to spend 80% of my time there. I just, I, I make myself livable. I make myself presentable. Okay. I play to my strengths and we, we need to, I, I, I think we really need to understand that God made you with your strengths and weaknesses, whether you call them gifts or talents. Some are spiritual, some are natural. 
but we need to spend our time playing to our strengths. And if you, if you can make yourself palatable, there's a second thing you can do, whether you're in a, a CEO of an organization or a pastor of a church, look at your weaknesses and hire that out to somebody else. Hire that out to somebody else. And, you know, you've got to learn how to make room for the way you were made. Remember that relationship trumps rules. Rules matter and do play a role, but relationships matter more and plays a greater role. Now, here's the last thing. Every person must realize that a balanced life, you, you have to do this. It's a process. It takes a while. I know that. But you have to make peace with your past. It doesn't mean that you can necessarily change your past. You say, Pastor, I've been so hurt and the person that did it is dead. I can't make peace with them. No, you make peace with your past. You make peace with the evil thing that they did. You make peace. You make peace with those that did you wrong. You don't have to get an apology from them to make peace. You have to get focus on what happened, how it affected you, and you need to let God bring you to a place where you can make peace with it. You'll find yourself reliving everything that somebody did wrong to you and you think, I've just been cursed. My life is a mess. It may be that God is positioning you to deal with that stuff. You say, I can, I can never forget what they did. That's okay. Just find a box to put it in. Make peace with your past. Number two, find purpose in the present. Some of us have no purpose in the present because we still can't get past what happened. I'm not minimizing that. There, there are things in my life I am scarred from. There are people in my life that scarred me. There are people I pastored that scarred me. But I can't focus on that. I have to find why did God spare me and bring me to this day? And then you've got to live with hope for the future. And I've got to believe that with all of my scars and aches and pains, I've got something to pass on. And I want to leave a legacy because I want the baton that has been precious to me. I want to pass it on to somebody else that will love the baton just like I do. Guys, I don't even know. There's, this message defies an altar call. There's no, there's no altar call to give except to just say, everybody wants to straighten your life out. Come forward, you know. <laughs> but I'm not going to do that. Ministry teams are coming. We're, we're, we're past due. I know that. We're way past due. And um, I need to let you go. But I can't dismiss without saying this. If you're here and you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, come and let the altar team pray with you. If you're watching online, call and uh, we'll be glad to talk with you and show you how you can walk with Jesus. Or if you're here and you have a need, we're here to pray for you. Other than that, I'm going to let you go. Um, I, I, you, you are so kind when I apologize for going over. So many of you say, oh, pastor, don't worry about it. We'll, we're with you. And I know that and I appreciate it. But I also know that we try. <laughs> we try to stay in a frame and sometimes... I, sometimes I just can't do it, uh, but, uh, but thank you for your patience. Would you stand, please? Let me bless you. Father, some are coming forward to the altar. Some are heading home or to work or to other activities. But whatever we're doing, 
I say, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord smile upon you with his countenance that brings peace and blessing and favor. And Lord, give us a week that we sense God moving in a way we haven't felt in a long time. Give us the victory from every trap of the enemy. Remove from us hopelessness. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.